strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logic are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. I'm your host, Carl Dowling. Great to be with you. It is, of course, the start of the week. Uh, it's Monday, the 17th of uh, June 2019. We're coming to you live here on Strong Voices from the Calm Radio Studios here on Arunda Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911. Also coming to you online as well, of course, through the Karma webpage. That's karma.com. Well, ahead on the program today, we're going to be hearing from a co-chair of the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples, the uh, peak national representative body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Concerns have been uh, recently expressed from the CEO of the organisation, with the organisation recently going into voluntary administration. Uh, Co-chair of the organisation, Rod Little, will be sharing his thoughts about a recent conversation had with the Federal Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, uh, Ken White, as the organisation moves forward, uh, remaining confident about the future of the organisation. Obviously, recently as well, we did have the uh, Queen's Birthday Honour List coming out recently, and we had a number of Aboriginal recipients from right across the country uh, recognising their amazing achievements and work right across the country. Here in Central Australia, though, we are going to be hearing from a uh, local doctor who was originally based in Sydney, and then she's been working here in Central Australia for more than a decade, uh, working within the intensive care unit. Uh, she's going to be explaining a bit about, uh, you know, her transition coming here to Central Australia and what it was like working with Aboriginal people for the first time. Uh, and uh, we, of course, as well, going to be hearing about the Adani uh, Carmichael coal mine. As you know, last Friday, the uh, state government giving approval for the mine and what that's going to mean for the mob, as we've heard over the years. We'll be looking to hear from uh, uh, the Wangan and Jangalunga traditional owners. We'll be hearing a Y report about that uh, Adani situation this morning. That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices this uh, Monday morning. Great to have your company here with me, Kyle Dowling, for Strong Voices. And I'll be taking you up until uh, 12 o'clock today as we play uh, a range of different interviews for you this morning on the program. We're going to head into our first story of the show now. I recently had an opportunity to sit down with uh, Dr. Penny Stewart, who uh, was recently recognised in the Queen's Birthday Honour List. And I sat down and had an opportunity to speak to her about a bit of her work working within the uh, medical field. Here's that conversation now. Well, it's uh, great to have you on Calm Radio. Thank you very much, Carl. Just first of all, uh, Penny, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, who you are and where you're from. I'm a, a doctor in intensive care. I trained in Sydney and then did some work overseas in the United Kingdom and then over in a lot of developing countries as well. I worked um, in Myanmar, Vietnam, Fiji and throughout my training and then started 
working in Sydney, both at two of the tertiary hospitals there, doing adult intensive care and paediatric anaesthetics. And you ended up here in Alice Springs. Yeah. Tell us about that journey of coming to Central Australia. How, how did that come about? Well, it, like everything, it happens a little bit by accident. I was really lucky because when I was a medical registrar finishing off my ICU training, the opportunity to come to Alice Springs happened. And I came here and I realised that there was two Australias. And as an Australian, I, I felt that it was really it was important to actually recognise that and hope to do something about it. And I said at the time that I left that if they wanted to improve the intensive care and that they wanted Australian leadership in intensive care, I'd come back and help them. Luckily, I got a phone call about four years later and, and that started the journey. So you're still working in intensive care? I am. I am. I have done for the last 15 years. Going into the actual medical field, how did that come about? I've always liked science and I've always liked the human side of science. And I became a doctor. I was inspired by my father, who was a doctor. And I met a lot of his patients. They were dialysis patients because he was a renal doctor. And I I saw how important uh, his work was to them because they'd come and give gifts to, to us as a family. And I thought, well, if you're going to do something using your science, what better than actually interact? with a huge group of people that you can play a small part in their lives. And you mentioned before that when you came here, you saw essentially like two different Australias. Mm. Can you elaborate a bit on that, what those differences were when you were coming here and those different challenges that Mm. you faced coming here and working here in Central Australia? I'd come from Sydney where resources were almost an oversupply for, for what you needed to do medically. It was very easy access to, to to look after any patients. And there was a lot of doctors and there was a lot of um, clinical support. And I came to Central Australia where there were very few doctors. There were very few services. And the next, next place that those services were available were 1,500 kilometres away. And in particular in ICU, which was the place I was working, uh, there actually wasn't a full-time intensive care doctors overlooking the intensive care, which was the case in in Sydney. And there was no one that had the same training as the rest of Australia. It was mainly overseas doctors who were doing a very good job, but hadn't been um, trained in the resources uh, that existed in Australia. And what's more, I saw the the, the patients, this, uh, this amazing group of people who um, had a higher burden of disease than anywhere else that I'd ever seen in Australia and they were coping incredibly well with it, but it was still, they had a, a degree of disease that I was expecting in a much younger age group and yet the services that we were providing to them were at that stage less than they would get if they were in the city hospitals and I saw that there was a a difference between what was available in the cities and what was available in more remote areas. Had you worked before with a lot of Aboriginal people? Previously? No, no, I, I'd never. Um, my my heritage is um, from New Zealand, and I'm a Maori, but I had never come across Aboriginal people or worked with Aboriginal people beforehand. And as an Australian, that was really important. That relationship and actually meeting Aboriginal people and realizing how generous Aboriginal people are and how they welcome us to their country. 
and what the effects of colonisation have been. Um, and, you know, it's really important to stand beside them as they're welcoming us to their country to stand beside them to help them overcome some of the the negative effects of colonisation. And what are some of the things that you've learnt and observed over the years in terms of working with Aboriginal people? The first thing that I've learnt is how strong they are. They've got amazing strength in their physiology and their way that they respond to, to disease. Everyone is always amazed at how sick people can be, but also how well they respond to treatment. And that's a really positive thing. I've also recognised that they've got this amazing sense of humour and amazing way of seeing the world in a slightly different way. And my husband, who's um, Aranda, made me really see that there was a difference between the Western culture, which is always trying to change the way um, the country is to suit our needs, compared to the Aboriginal people who adapt to the country. And I think that adaption to the country and seeing the country and seeing how what it really is gets you to really enjoy Australia in a completely different way and um, uh, and it's a really important gift that Aboriginal people can give to us. Now unfortunately we do see in, in some communities you know third world diseases still mm. existing. Yeah. How have you seen uh, the progression towards you know eradicating diseases amongst the mob and, and becoming you know healthier in that sense but also you know growing that understanding about the importance of health and things like that? There is no doubt about it. There is still a a big life expectancy gap and there is still too much disease in early adulthood in particular, diabetes and renal failure being uh, two of the biggest examples of, of those diseases. The other problem is poverty. The problem of infections and poverty, poor food choices because of um, expense and and the housing conditions where people have to live in overcrowded houses and often without the resources are drivers of the disease. There have been some really good things that have happened. Certainly the immunisation of children has been an enormous benefit and when I first came the children were a lot sicker because it was before the immunisation became quite so available and that really has improved things. There's real efforts towards more primary school education and um, and now in the early childhood space which is great. And most recently the, the changes to the alcohol legislation has really dropped the presentations which are alcohol-related to the hospital, which has been great because it means that people aren't getting sick all the time and there's not so much grief associated with it. Obviously, these are as early stages with this alcohol legislation. We're keeping the data to see whether these changes will lead to long-term benefits, but it looks really promising at the moment. As you mentioned, things like uh, poverty and things like that, obviously that's a thing we have to attack on multiple Mm. levels. Mm. But what role do you think communities play in terms of improving your health and getting those healthy messages out there? Well, I think it's pivotal. And and one of the things that has been a, a great joy is, is working with the Aboriginal liaison officers who are able to stand beside us in um, working with our Aboriginal patients and being able to get those messages and understanding out um, as to why people are getting sick and how you can stop yourself from getting sick and to really help negotiate that trust in the medical space. 
it's hopeless if we're giving treatments and they're not trusted because then people don't take them. Um, and building up that sort of understanding and trust um, has been pivotal in getting those relationships good. The other thing is that slowly the Aboriginal health workforce is growing, which is of enormous importance. Uh, we've now got five young doctors uh, from Alice Springs that are Aboriginal from Alice Springs being doctors in our hospital and hopefully that's a, the start of uh, a new wave of, of our medical profession. There's also more, many more people taking part in Aboriginal health workforce and many of the elders have been incredibly important in taking the messages that we've stated or bringing to us the problems and discussing them so we can develop a greater understanding between us all so that the right messages are getting out to the community. And, and that is pivotal to, um, to making sure that the people get the right treatment and have trust in us. Uh, great to hear, you know, the amount of doctors here in Central Australia mm. that are Aboriginal. Do, do you think there's a great interest there amongst the mob to, to get involved in health? Look, I think it will grow. The... With with everything, success breeds interests. Uh, there always has to be a few people that uh, get involved first, and and then it it and when they succeed, which I'm sure they will, because they look like a really good group. Um, that will build the confidence to to um, to interact in that in that space, along with the nursing workforce, um, along with the Aboriginal health um, workforce, and I think it's also important uh, that we learn um, walking beside our Aboriginal workforce to actually ensure that we're working in a way that. Uh, that helps them to to work and to be um, to be valued and to be able to be heard because it's really important that and for us to learn from them in how we can be better doctors for Aboriginal people and better nursing staff for Aboriginal people it will always be it will always need both groups working together um, but you know the more the more interaction the stronger we'll get. One of the really important things that I've learned is that that often the patients are coming in many times uh, with the same sickness, and each time they're actually getting worse. And what it, what that's taught me is that, that there's a big gap between hospital and the home, and also that there is a real importance in patients actually understanding what is wrong with them and us working together to negotiate um, how they're going to stay well so that they don't get sick again. Because unfortunately, once you get sick, sick enough to be in intensive care, it's, it's much harder to get better. So it'd be better for them to not um, come into intensive care in the first place. And that's led to uh, some research that we've done on, uh, on, um, on people who, who are presenting multiple times into the hospital and looking at um, whether someone who's almost a caseworker can actually help look at um, at them in particular to help them negotiate that that transition between um, hospital and home and 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 some of that work um, we're hoping will tell us how to how do we prevent people from getting sick again. Now, 
Congratulations, R and Order. You were recently recognised yeah. during uh, the Queen's birthday honour list. Mm. What was that like for you? What, what was your initial reaction when you found out? I, I was absolutely delighted. Um, my first reaction was uh, of, of, of absolute pleasure. My second reaction was, well, there's so many people that deserve this, this award and there's so many people that have helped me get to the place I have and so many people have been under-recognised in, in helping me get to that place and, and for all of them I feel it's an award for all of us um, and um, and my third response was really, you know, this is an enormous opportunity uh, to promote the idea of rural intensive cares, that it is really important that we have intensive care in rural areas that help stabilise a hospital, look after the sickest patients so that the rest of the hospital can uh, get on and do their, their work. Uh, and the, the importance of um, Aboriginal uh, education and Indigenous health and, um, and the importance of working together to create an Aboriginal health workforce. Well, on that note, uh, Penny, thank you so much for taking your time out to speak with us on Calm Radio. Thank you very much, Carl. Yes, that was uh, Dr Penny Stewart there, who was uh, recently honoured in the Queen's birthday honour list for her work within the medical field. We're going to head to a quick break now, and then we'll be right back with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. <laughs> Yes, that's right. You're listening to Strong Voices this uh, Monday morning. Great to have your company today. Now it's time for the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. I'm very happy to welcome into the Karma Radio studio, Karma's Damien Williams. Damien, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good morning, Karma. How are you going? Good, thank you. It's uh, great to be here this uh, really, really nice morning here in central australia in alice springs yeah it's a bit fresh in the morning outside yeah uh well i understand you have a story this morning in regards to dual naming yes um well australia's highest peak mount kosciuszko um there's been uh, a group um pushing to get um have have already submitted to the geologic uh, geographical names board of New South Wales that um, Mount Kosciuszko have the dual name of uh, Kunama Nem- Nemaji, meaning snow and mountain. Um, the proposal for the dual name was lodged by the Tumara, Tumara Umba Kunam, Kunama Nemaji um, Indigenous Corporation last month and has been workshopped um, to different Indigenous groups uh, around the area as well. Genrigo um, uh, uh, Elder and um, Tumbarumba uh, resident Uncle John Casey said that um, said the peak was a spiritually significant place for um, Nagari Nagarigo people as well. Sorry for butchering these names. Nagarigo um, people uh, and um, you know so, but there have been some um, 
other pushes from from other groups around the area because there is you know a lot of a lot of people from a lot of nations around that area as well um Nigerigo woman um rs white is the chairperson of the southern kosciuszko executive advisory committee um which was set up to link the management of kosciuszko national park with traditional owners uh, she said the conversation over the dual names had been going on for a long time and that the current proposal was um offensive to the Nagarigo people so um you know it's 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 a long process as well trying to get um all the nations from around that area to to come together um especially when um some of the languages uh, haven't been spoken for a long time as well um to be able to try and figure out um you know what the mountain was called back in the old days as well and or figure out a, a new sort of name that um, that's appropriate, yeah. Yeah, that's appropriate from all nations as well. And as we know, um, you know, some languages, uh, a word can mean something different in another language as well. So it's got to be, you know, sort of... Um, Just on that, um, even the um, the English pronunciation of... You pronounced it Kosciuszko. It's in Polish, it's Kosciuszko. Yeah. yes. Uh, so again, you know, it's it's not even pronounced correctly as mm-hmm. it is now. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Polish pronunciation is not Kosciuszko. So mm-hmm. um, I think going back to the original place name would be a good start. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, and like we've seen a lot of movement around the country of places being duly named with their um, First Nations name as well. So, yeah, it's a lot of discussion has got to keep happening. Yeah. Uh, Just briefly, Paul, you've joined us in the studio. What do you have for us this morning? Okay, well, uh, this is an article by Hannah Robertson uh, out of the conversation. uh, Caring for country, how remote communities are building on payment for ecosystem services. Now, basically, caring for country is something that the mob have been doing for a long time, but actually receiving uh, some financial support for what they do. The payment for ecosystem services is supporting a new wave of self-determined construction on Aboriginal homelands. With no secure strategy for government infrastructure investment in the homelands, particularly in new housing or new homelands, uh, PES provides an alternative approach to support meaningful livelihoods on country. Importantly, revenue from PES can support self-determined and appropriate building uh, on, uh, on community, on country in community. Uh, PES can attract funding from government, such as for ranger programs and from private sources in the form of carbon credits and corporate social responsibility funds. Research suggests it's also crucial for improving social outcomes for uh, Aboriginal communities. Um, We might give Hannah Robertson a ring. Uh, But basically, uh, again, it's looking at more ways of... um, receiving financial recompense for a job that's been done um, for thousands of years. Managing country, it's taken, uh, you know, white scientists quite a while to catch up and understand that it it just didn't happen. And as, uh, you know, Bruce Pascoe wrote in in, uh, his famous book, uh, uh, a different way of looking at um, why the country was maintained so well, uh, it just didn't happen. So uh, finally getting some recognition for um, connection to country 
country and maintenance of country in uh, a financial uh, manner will make a big difference to many remote communities. Well, on that note, uh, Paul, Damien, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're going to head into our next story now. Uh, As you may have heard in our news, uh, the peak body, uh, the peak national representative body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples, uh, who represent uh, several thousand Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations and people across the country, recently announced that uh, it had gone into voluntary administration because of its uncertain financial position. Carmus Paul Wiles recently sat down with one of the co-chairs of National Congress, uh, Rod Little, Uh, We're going to hear that conversation today. Very happy to say Rod Little, co-chair of the National Congress, joins us on the program. Rod, welcome back. Thanks very much. The National Congress of Australia's First Peoples uh, has gone into voluntary administration. You had a meeting with the new Federal Minister for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, Ken Wyatt. Now, how did that go? And, And basically, where is the government sitting with this at the moment? The meeting went quite positively. And we're going to be working with government as as best we can to um, see what we can do to save Congress. And um, I think that's promising. I think there is quite a large amount of support across the country for Congress. In particular, of great importance is the voice of our membership. And um, I think that it would be fair to say that there's... The National Congress is is a organisation of its members and it's our people who is our priority there. And our voices of our people um, can be heard through the National Congress currently. And I think that's critically important. It is, a, it is an organisation and the Minister really understands this and gets this because, um, you know, there is... We haven't had this kind of an organisation established before, which was designed by our people for our people. Historically, a lot of organisations, and, and you know, ATSIC is one of those examples where um, it's, it's basically set up with, with, uh, with government, by government, and can be removed by government. Um, but with National Congress, it's, it's really um, important that it, it belongs to the people. Rod, um, the workings that you have had with government, I mean, it did take some time to come to that working arrangement. There was a a great reluctance uh, from the uh, coalition government uh, around a national body for the First Nations uh, following on from ATSIC. Uh, There was a lot of work and effort went in to convincing government that this body was one that they could work with and one that would take the First Nations peoples forward. Yes, and, and I still believe it, it is and, and can do that. And I think, just on reflection, that Labor was in, in office when that happened, when Congress came about. Um, but we heard some early signs from the coalition that the, the support wouldn't be there. Um, but we managed to survive this, this long, and, and the... Our feature and in our hands report uh, really outlined a long-term proposition for such a body like Congress. But um, I think that historically, as governments go, as they change, they they're only there for a short period of time, so they're not going to have uh, forward commit too much to a body that um, 
they predominantly may or may not have had a hand in. I mean, the other thing is, is that the establishment of Congress was the initial stage. That was the first stage. So we've, we've done that bit now. Um, the other proposition, the long-term proposition, was something like a, a $10 million per year for the next 10 years to to stabilise, consolidate the foundations of a national body. But in the meantime, uh, during that process, we would be in stage two, consolidating other streams of um, resourcing so that we're not dependent on government uh, for future funding. Um, and, and that takes, a, you know, quite a while to establish an organisation uh, for it, for any organisation, even if it's a local footy club. You know, you take time to get get organised. Uh, you need resources over a long period of time to to sustain yourself. And and there's some lessons that we've learned along the way. Um, I guess is how do we maintain our connection with our membership is often difficult and expensive. Uh, we did have in the early stages uh, uh, a framework and processes that enabled us to do it, and I think that was quite effective. But it was um, it was expensive, and that kind of expense is one that we couldn't sustain if we weren't receiving uh, that regular funding over a period of time. Rod, the. Um the National Congress, um, as you said, it was established when Labor was in government. There was uh, initial um, reluctance by the coalition government to go down yep. the road of dealing with a political voice for the First Nations. Yeah. So, so getting that balance right between engaging with whoever's in, in government, whatever government yep. is there, but being on the page so that they can see that uh, while there will be political issues come up that uh, may not, you know, they may or may not agree with, the, yeah, con yeah. the continuity of the National Congress is significant uh, because it has established a platform that can go forward. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, there is there are many, I think, uh, values that the the Parliament of Australia can receive from from a body like National Congress. I mean, the certain certainly the honesty and the truthfulness of, of matters that impact on our people and our communities that will come from the National Congress. It may be different that what a commissioned piece of work from government might uh, present to government. What government then does with their own piece of work is entirely up to them. But at least if we were to do a piece of work um, that describes what our people are experiencing out there on a day-to-day -day basis, it remains um, the fact that we have sourced our information from our membership in the first place and our communities and saying, look, this hasn't shifted. Uh, so what do you keep, you know, what do you need to do to to correct its government. And we, we know we've often said this. We've said many things for many years. It's been repetitive to different governments as they come in and come and go. Is that life expectancy still hasn't really shifted. Mm. So we need that really needs to be addressed. And that's something that's not going to happen in a term of government. 
I mean, and, and I think that that's, that's what governments need to realise. Mm. Uh, um, and it's not about the money. You've got to invest in the solutions that communities hold and, and the strategies that they know what works for them. Um, I think I think the other thing is that you know with our with Congress's uh, one of our main purposes is to be the conduit between ourselves, our own mobs, our members, and our mobs and communities and organisations um, between ourselves, so we so we support one another. Um, but also, Congress is the conduit between our mobs and governments right across the country, and that's one, one way, I think. And we are a critical informant to the Parliament in Australia. And, I mean, I know there's, there's this pursuit of, uh, you know, the voice to, uh, to Parliament. Well, currently Congress does that. I mean, and it, it is a model that's been authorised by our membership. Ken Wyatt, a, a very experienced operator um, within bureaucracies in both health and education. Yep. And obviously also having a very good understanding of the plight of the First Nations peoples when we look at yep. all of the closing the gap. Um, was he positive about the future of the National Congress? It definitely is, and, and I draw from that. I mean, I know that Ken has that professional experience, that political experience, but he also has that lived experience as being an Aboriginal man, a young man. And, and I think that is, that is so unique that previous ministers for Indigenous affairs cannot claim particularly that lived experience of, you know, of Ken's. And, and I've known Ken for a long time. I've known him to be an honest and, and, a, and a man of integrity. Um, uh, the, the meetings, and in fact, Ken was one of our guest speakers at the, the launch of the National Congress. So he understands and he's, he's seen the, the energy, the passion and commitment from the delegates that attended that very first uh, gathering in Homebush in Sydney. So... So, he, so I believe that he has a good understanding of the the objectiveness of the National Congress. Uh, he can see the the difference in previous bodies. Um, although, you know, um, at the end of the day, he's elected by people in his electorate, and he's uh, a member of the political party. Um, but he's prepared to work with us to find. A solution. Mm. I, I think there is a, a unique opportunity um, mm. at the moment um, for the continuation of of a peak body, and and yep. while there may be some of the older brigade who are critical of what Congress has been doing, I think without any national peak body. The, the journey has to begin all over again. You've, you've done the hard yards almost now. It's about maintaining a relationship with government at that yeah. government level so that, you know, the plight of the First Nations is, is there all the time. It's not something that they can walk away from. That, that's exactly right, you know, and, and you've touched on a, a very good point, Paul, is about, you know, obviously we do have um, some of the old guard around, um, and sometimes we still have the same old approaches. Um, you know, from from a, 
from our perspective, I think the opportunity lies with us to be um, our mobs to be more united. We always talk about unity. Um, we always talk about self-empowerment, self-determination. But for that to be really uh, effective, we really have to um, park our differences and see what, what, we, what do we need to do to shift the approaches of, of governments? What do we need to do to shift the relationships with governments and, and, and the relationships with ourselves? And I think we have that opportunity right now. Um, there, is, there is a kind of rhetoric expectation that we, we as organisations will react to whatever government wants. And some, often there is that collusion under that, with that rhetoric, if you like, um, from our mob because we've, we've been so dependent on government. And, and we're to deliver services, number one. But any, any government wouldn't support a, um, a body that would consistently challenge the government's approach to trying to better our, our circumstances. I think, I think one of the, the things that I've reflected on since the, um, uh, the coalition in, from Tony Abbott's time was that there was a, and this affected civil society as well as you know, other NGOs too, is that the government um, under Tony Abbott sort of uh, dismantled a lot of the advocacy groups or advisory bodies that gave government's advice on policy and on legislation and all those things. Um, and that, that was across the board on many issues. Um, so that so it, it raises the question then where does government then seek its advice? They're very particular and, and selective about that advice. Mm. And with, with the National Congress, we can give advice through our through our membership um, from our member organisations and the people who work in sectors. But we can also give advice or inform government what's affecting our mob on the ground. Because there is that, you know, that, that's one of the things that um, Congress offers our members is that direct, um, we're like, our members are like shareholders of a company. So we have to take notice of our members. Mm. Rod, just to finish, um, can you just give us, a, a, again, just a brief overview of where, uh, how, how you view the current situation, but more importantly, going forward? Yeah, look, um, I think uh, the whilst we ran into voluntary administration, it, it's, it's probably uh, one thing to, to understand is that, yeah, money doesn't last forever. <laughs> if you don't get it, you, you get to this kind of point. Um, but I think that the, the wise decision that the board made was to go into voluntary administration, which creates an opportunity for us to... Um, and for, for the company through the administrators to have a look at um, uh, particularly the uh, reviewing of uh, how we come so far, looking at our structures, looking at our governance arrangements, what is our, our key objectives, what are, the, what are the implications through our, our structures, what do we need to go forward, and then map out um, a plan to go forward 
and that's what we're hoping that we can work with government for to, to map this out properly. And then, um, but the the key thing is always to um, to be self-sustaining in the future, so that you can say whatever you want, whenever you want, without any repercussions from government. You can be challenging all the time, but. I think that in the future we can be much stronger informants to government and we can be much stronger representative voice for our peoples. Mm. Rod, um, many thanks for your time. Uh, we'll obviously watch on with great interest, but uh, yeah. I'm sure with Ken Wyatt uh, there there is something there that hasn't been there in the past and uh, as, mm-hmm. uh, as, as you and others um, uh, are are in no doubt um, the time now is is to create these relationships that will go into yeah. the future and uh, um, it, it is important that uh, you know government understands not only the necessity of the national congress but going forward as a nation there has to be a, a peak yeah. representative voice yeah that's a, that's a really important point you've made Paul because there is if we have a look at the congress itself there is there's an ability for non-Indigenous peoples to be supporters of the National Congress, like friends of Congress. And we're up, you know, in our thousands there already. But we have these critical NGOs that work in civil society that really see the value of Congress, and our relationships with them is so important. Rod Little, many thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Paul. Good to talk to you. Yes, that was Carmen's Paul Wiles speaking with the co-chair of the uh, National Congress of Australia's First Peoples, Rod Little, here on uh, Strong Voices. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices this uh, Monday morning. We're going to head into our final uh, story for today. Uh, as mentioned earlier, Adani, the Indian mining giant Adani, did receive uh, f- the final environmental approval for the billion-dollar Carmichael coal mine uh, late last week. Today we're going to hear a wire report. Uh, Melvika Hermanth recently spoke with uh, Tom Crothers of uh, Stella Advisory Services about that determination. There'd be 15 landholders up around the Adani mine who would be very, very concerned about their supplies of water for their livestock and their uh, households. Those landholders uh, potentially will lose partial or all of their water supplies, and that's their livelihood. We're seeing science being trashed uh, for the politics of jobs. Jobs are important, but we need to make sure they're sustainable, and we need to make sure they're not at the expense of the long-term sustainability of our resource or the livelihoods of 15 landholders. Scientists have stated that Adani's groundwater management plan has significantly underestimated future impacts to the Dungmabula Springs complex. What damage is their plan going to have on the springs? Most projections are suggesting that the extraction of groundwater out of the mine, drawdown of impacts on the springs, there's over 160 wetlands there uh, which are dependent on groundwater outflows and if those flows cease we uh, potentially could have uh, 13 plant species and 68 fauna species impacted. These species all uh, depend on the springs and if the springs dry up they'll be impacted. According to scientists, the adaptive management plan is unsuitable and unlikely to protect the springs from extinction. Do you agree with this statement? 
Yes, absolutely. The use of adaptive management means that you're making changes to the management after something has happened. What you find in drawdown of these sorts of springs is that you've got a lead time and then when you start to observe drawdown, it's usually too late when you start to bring in adaptive management practice to try and counteract that. The issue is we should be on the front foot making sure that we don't have this drawdown rather than trying to repair situations or repatriate situations after. Adani has also promised to fix the modelling limitations identified by the CSIRO and Geoscience Australia within two years of the first coal being mined. Do you believe they will keep this promise and if not, what problems could arise? We've had two court cases over the modelling. There has been a lot of scientific debate and disagreement over the parameters used in the model and how the results have been interpreted and whether there's enough data in the model. If Adani's given that commitment, I just hope that the government they've given that commitment to monitors that and makes sure they do deliver. In the approvals given, we've got a whole heap of conditions relating to water. In the Commonwealth Government's Environmental Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act approval, there's 20 conditions related to water. Water. There's 69 conditions associated with the Darnies Associated Water Licence and there's 43 water-related conditions in respect to their environmental authority. You can have all the conditions under the sun, but unless government monitors Adani's compliance for those and takes decisive action, if they're not complying with them, they're worth naught. The CSIRO accepted the federal government's approval of Adani's water plans in a single afternoon. Do you believe the science agency was pressured to accept their plans without thorough research? Documents which I've seen which were, uh, were secured under right to information indicates that there was significant pressure applied to both CSIRO and Geoscience Australia to uh, change their view on the groundwater management plans supplied by Adani. I note that the CSIRO's bioregional assessment certainly indicates some significant concerns about the hydrogeological modelling which has been developed for the area and highlight impacts on the the groundwater resources in that assessment. I don't think those sorts of matters can be resolved in an afternoon. And what impact will the Adani coal mine have on other groundwater dependent ecosystems? The Adani mine will also have uh, impact on the Metaluca Springs. Adani concede that Metaluca Springs will dry up through their dewatering operations and their repatriation of that is to sink a deep bore and put a deep bore pump in and pump water into the spring areas to try and keep the habitats alive. That only works while Adani's operating there and when Adani uh, disappears or f- finishes mining, uh, you can expect those springs to disappear. If you look at Adani's mine plus eight other proposed mines in the area, there is some potentially 2,000 billion litres of water will be extracted from the underground systems and, well, that's not sustainable. That'll have major impacts on the uh, groundwater resources of the area. The Adani coal mine has been approved by the Queensland Government today, which will set a precedent for six other mines also planned for the region. What cumulative impact will these mines create for the Galilee Basin? It's interesting that when the Queensland Coordinator General approved the environmental authorities for a number of these mines, one of the recommendations was that the Queensland Government develop a cumulative assessment groundwater model. To this date, it has not been developed even though the Palaszczuk government in one of the election manifestos said that they would develop it in 2015. still has not been developed. It wasn't until December 2018 that the Queensland government required miners to actually measure or estimate their groundwater use and report that to government. The uh, government has allowed miners to exercise an underground water right, which means they can remove as much water as they 
like, unlimited volumes, uh, to make safe mining in the mining pits. We're going to see uh, significant amounts of water taken out of the Galilee Basin aquifers. Potentially, if there's nine mines go ahead there, there'll be 2,000 billion litres of water. And that's for four Sydney harbours, and that's a heck of a lot of water coming out of that system. It's not sustainable. That was uh, Tom Crothers there, Director of uh, Stellar Advisory Services. They were speaking with the wines, uh, Malvik uh, Hermanth. Uh, that's going to conclude Strong Voices for this morning. Thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed the program. Uh, if you wanted to listen back to the show or you missed any of the interviews this morning, I will be posting up a podcast of the show on uh, Karma's SoundCloud, so you can check it out there later this afternoon. And we'll, of course, be the back uh, at the same time tomorrow from 11 till 12. Strong voices. Which are